Hey everybody, how are you? This is Mike Van Meter and welcome to the Recovery is Possible podcast. And I want to thank you for joining me and you can reach us at our Facebook site, which is also called Recovery is Possible or our website, which is vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com. And this podcast, as you know, exists to educate the public about addiction and remove the stigma associated with addiction. And folks, uh, just want to let you know that this episode is sponsored by FHE Health, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Treatment Center, specializing in treatment for first responders' needs, including PTSD, anxiety, and substance use. So take the first steps to a better life today by visiting FHEHealth.com. And folks, I want to bring on a guest uh, to the show Frank Runnels, and Frank Runnels has his own podcast out there. It's called Lies People Tell. And uh, coincidentally, that's also the name of a new book that he put out, Lies People Tell. And the title, or the subtitle is actually an FBI agent's toolkit for coaching liars and cheats. Now, the question might be, well, why are we talking about that on this podcast? And the reason being is this book, which is excellent, and I highly recommend that you get it, has applications to nearly everyone and to everything that we do. And particularly when it comes to addiction, which is the topic of this podcast, because lying and being deceptive in different forms of deception affect us in in all of our lives, particularly in addiction. Um, We lie to ourselves, we lie to others, and then when we end up in treatment or in recovery, uh, we, we lie about our own use. And not always because we are trying to deceive people, sometimes we just can't come to the realization that the situation is as bad as it is. Um, and we really want to hide that from ourselves. And as you know, recovery is about brutal honesty and becoming honest with yourself and others as well. And just by way of background, as many of you know, I was an instructor down at the FBI Academy, specifically at the FBI National Academy. And I was teaching leading at risk employees as well as some other courses. And my good friend, Frank Runnels was uh, also an instructor at the National Academy. And he was teaching um, a course on statement analysis. And uh, I would sit in and I would watch Frank teach, and and he and he'll discuss the topics that he that he talked about in that class, and it was phenomenal. But of course, I'm looking at this course through the lens of the world that I work in, and I just thought, man, there are so many similarities between what Frank does and what I'm doing, and we would get into long discussions about it. And I just thought, man, you got to come on this podcast and talk to our listeners about. Uh, how this works and how we can apply it to ourselves. And uh, Frank, after he retired, uh, started his own podcast and then uh, began working on the book that we're going to be talking about. And I'm so proud of him because he completed it this past year, got it published. Uh, It's out and he can tell you how to get it. But it is a phenomenal book, lots of applications to every aspect of your life. And I'm really excited to have Frank come in and, and talk about it. We also did an entire episode on his podcast about, uh, direct application to recovery. So please check that out. Again, it's called Lies People Tell. With that, Frank, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, tell us a a bit about yourself and, you know, a little bit about what you do and what prompted you to write this book. And and then we'll go into how this applies to what we do. Well, you know, I've retired uh, FBI agent, spent uh, 20 plus years as an FBI agent. Prior to that, I was in the Army for 10 years. And I uh, worked criminal matters and spent a lot of my time, majority of my time, interviewing people. And the one thing I've learned in being an FBI agent was that 
being able to talk to people and and understand what they're saying and being able to determine if they're being truthful to me or not was essential for me to be able to do my job properly. But in a larger extent, it's kind of essential to be able to do that just to live a good life. So when I retired, I, I had the opportunity to learn a lot about the statement analysis and and how words work and how people use different phrases in different contexts to try to deceive people. And I took everything I learned about detection, deception, and statement analysis and dissolved it down into what I call deceptive language analysis. It's a little different from statement analysis. I use statements in the book to uh, give an example of what we're talking about, but I look at language and when people are being deceptive, using deceptive language, as opposed to looking for when they're telling me the big lie. Because mm. I found that if you're spending time trying to catch someone in a lie, you're not listening to half the things they're saying because you're sitting there plotting your trap to catch them in a the lie. The reality is, is you can learn so much more if you just listen to them openly and with curiosity take in everything they say and just start saying, okay, well, why did they say it this way? Why did they use this term? Why did they say we when it should have been me? Those type of things. Why did they give me a lot of information, extraneous information, that's not really answering the question asked? That's all in the, the realm of deceptive language. And those are all strong indicators that someone's being deceptive. So I, I wrote this book more not as a law enforcement book, because there's books out there for specifically law enforcement talking about statement analysis and detection of deception. I wrote this book for the common person, the person that interviews people for a living if you're a mentor or like in your field, counseling, mm -hmm. whether it be a, uh, addiction or just counseling someone on career, business, whatever. But specifically in this case, addiction uh, if you're a mentor, if you're an HR manager hiring people, if you're a boss interviewing people uh, for a job or you're mediating between disputes between uh, your subordinates or employees, there's so many applications for the deceptive language analysis in your everyday life. And it just, I felt like I have this much knowledge that I need to share it with people so people don't get you know, cheated and ripped off because of someone was slick and double talked them and they, they sort of knew something wasn't right, but they didn't know why they knew it. I want everybody to walk away when they're done with this thing. Okay. Now I know what they were trying to pull there, you know, and being forearmed is forewarned is forearmed. It is. And it really does have an application to uh, addiction. And I know in, in my own life, it was important because you know, we, we keep these secrets from ourselves and certainly from, from others. And, you know, Frank, um, when, when I go through the DSM-5, the Diagnostics and Statistics Manual, and we, we look at, you know, how to, uh, diagnosing someone with alcohol use disorder or opiate use disorder or substance use disorder or any of the other number of uh, disorders that are out there, one of the criteria is actually being, and I'm paraphrasing here, but being um, deceptive about your your use and not being honest with others uh, about your use. Because after all, I just take alcohol, for example, normal social drinkers don't hide bottles. They don't lie about their use, use because there's no need to. Why would you lie about it if you didn't have a particular problem? And right. 
maybe just starting with with that, uh, you know, if you're talking to your loved one and you're interviewing them, what would be the what would that look like? Um, and and if somebody is trying to, uh, you know, let's say you come home and you're you're asking your spouse about their use and and you're talking to them about that, what would that look like? What would be some examples? What would you be looking for? Well, if let's take the broad strokes of what deceptive language looked like, you know, and then the book, the first half of the book is very much a broad strokes where it's the very big indicators that jump out at you if you know what you're looking for. And then the second half of the book is more drills down linguistically on nouns, verbs, adverbs, and how those are used. So let's talk a broad stroke. When most people try to be deceptive, they give a statement using uh, what I call an imbalanced statement. So say you're talking to someone and you're asking them about an incident where maybe they, they abuse, you know, alcohol or narcotics. After they swore off that they wouldn't do it again, they did it again. And you asked them, level one asked them, why would you do such a thing? And, you know, tell me about what you did last night. Say it was, you, you went on a drinking binge, right? And you say, well, tell me about what last night, what happened? Now, they know what you're referring to. They're, you're referring to their incident, whether it's a drinking binge or using narcotics or whatever. If they spend the majority of the time telling you everything except what they did that night, say they give you this long dissertation on, well, you know, I went to the grocery store and I bought this, but I decided I didn't like this type of bread, so I went and tried to find another type of bread, but they didn't have it. So I talked to the store manager and he said that he could order it for me and, and I decided it's not worth it. And then I went and got this and then I, then I stopped and got gas and they go through this whole long litany of details that are mi- meaningless to the question asked. And when they finally get to the point where then I sat down and I cracked open a bottle of whatever, you know, beverage that they wanted to drink that night. And, you know, I drank myself into a stupor and then I fell asleep. The majority of that statement did not deal with what they did, the incident they're talking about, the drinking. It talked about everything but. So that's what I call an imbalanced statement. So if you ask someone, whatever the the subject be, but in this case, you know, a a drinking, let's say a drinking incident when, you know, they've sworn off drinking and they spend almost their whole time telling you everything except about the drinking because they don't want to address that or they get to that point in the story and they say, I didn't drink anything and I can't believe you'd ask them that and move on. You know, they're being deceptive because they're trying to avoid telling a lie because lying is hard to do for most people. Mm-hmm. I know it seems, it seems strange when people hear, well, you know, lie, how can lying be hard to do? Well, it's hard to do because it creates such a cognitive overload and stressors because you have to come up with a lie that's convincing that has enough detail that sounds realistic, but not so much detail that you can't keep it straight. And you have to be able to remember this and do it over and over again because you may be asked the same thing numerous times in different ways. And you know that you're lying. And if you get caught, there's a consequence. That's a lot of stress. So people avoid lying, but that's why they use deceptive language. They'll say, you know, well, why did you drink last night? Well, I didn't drink that much. Well, 
that wasn't the question. And now we now we've established that you drank, but you're saying you didn't drink that much. That's an equivalent. The, that's a minimizer. He's minimizing how much he drank. Or, as I said, they give a long dissertation at, to, to give the appearance that I'm not hiding anything. I'm not holding anything back. But when you ask yourself how much of the information they gave you was pertinent, you'd see that almost none of it was pertinent to the drinking incident itself. So that's one of the easiest and biggest ways. And along with that, all of that information they're giving you up front is what I call extraneous information. Now, extraneous information sounds like, well, that means it's meaningless. No, actually, extraneous information is very important because many times people will give you clues inside the extraneous information of their motivations and why they did it. Because what extraneous information does is it, it serves two purposes. It serves the purpose of justifying actions and behaviors. So you're giving an explanation of why you did what you did through extraneous information or it's answering a question that was never asked. We never asked about the trip to the grocery store, the gas station, or anything like that. But you're telling us all of these things leading up to it. Now, the extraneous information in that story, maybe what's important is, is all of those things, the frustrations of not being able to get the bread he wants, the frustration of having to pay high gas prices at the pump, who knows? Maybe that was the trigger for the drinking incident. We don't know. But that extraneous information is everything that they're giving you that's really not pertinent to the question at hand, but it still could be important to indicate some of their motivations or reasons of why they did what they did. Yeah, and I will tell you, so we can talk about families here in a second, but I can tell you in training to be a counselor right now, one of the things I do when patients come in is we do an assessment. You know, if you end up in a treatment center, um, you're going to sit down with a counselor and they're going to do what's known as a BPSA or a biopsychosocial assessment. And in the assessment, that's when we're collecting data on the patient. And there's a lot of information that's gathered in there, biographical data, uh, the uh, what, what your education level, your family, uh, particularly we want to find out what sort of addictions and other issues and mental health issues have uh, occurred in a family. And uh, ultimately, in, in the mix of all those questions, we're going to be talking about the patient's use. Now, um, I can tell you, I, I have yet to see a patient where the, the BPSA that I did when they came in, and then as the time goes on while they're in treatment, in our particular case, it's just under a month that, that they're with us, the information that I get from the patients in those ensuing four weeks looks radically different um, than what we took in that first week with the BPSA, you know, when we do that initial, so I'll do that initial interview and then we'll go through all the group sessions and individual sessions. And then of course, more information comes out and comes out and comes out. So uh, it's, it's very important, however, though, because to get the, the correct information when the patient comes in, because that information in the BPSA, when they first come in is used to put together the treatment plan, which is what is going to be used to determine what you do with the patient in the, the next four weeks. So the more information that you can get, more accurate information you can get in that BPSA, the more effective the treatment plan is going to be. And uh, so everybody is going to minimize the amount of use. I, I almost guarantee that when a patient tells me what they're using, Number, first of all, the types of drugs are alcohol. It's usually going to be more than what they're telling us. And then the amount, certainly the amount 
is going to be much less than than what they they were really using. So, Frank, maybe address um, a, a what are the motivators behind the patient doing that to begin with, and then what could in our case a counselor do in the interview to maximize accuracy and honesty from the patient when they first come in. Well, what they're doing is a classic case of you, you minimizing or intensifying. You know, you use adverbs uh, to either minimize or intensify uh, actions. So when they come in and they're minimizing, and they all will uh, minimize their drug or alcohol use, and they want to appear not as bad as they think they will if they tell you everything. If if I tell you, well, you know, I only, you know, smoke uh, weed once a day, you know, and it turns out I smoke it 45 times a day. Well, there's a huge difference in between the two. But in his mind, it's much more acceptable to say one time versus 45. The reality is it's 45. Or he will uh, intensify that I, I would never, ever do such a thing. You know, he is going to be very you know, intends to let you know that I would never do such a thing. I want to prove to you that, you know, and it's always like over the top trying to justify and convince because when you're using minimizers or intensifiers, you're not really conveying information. You're trying to convince. You're either trying to convince me that you don't use uh, alcohol or drugs or whatever as much as you really do, that you're not in as bad a shape as you really are, Financially, you're not broke because you used all your money uh, in the, on the verge of bankruptcy because of your addiction, or you're you're trying to convince me that you would never do such a thing, and your family's the most important thing, and that you're trying to do you're you're doing the best anybody could ever do. You're trying to convince, not convey. All you're asking is is tell me this, this, and this. And if they're spending a lot of time with minimizers or intensifiers, they're trying to deceive you because they're trying to convince you of something. And you can almost rest assured they're not being honest because you're asking them a straightforward question. How many times have you done this? And, you know, if they, you know, especially if they become off as being like, you know, how dare you ask this thing? Mm -hmm. Why would you ever think such a thing? Mm -hmm. You know, what are you trying to say? Well, now they're being defensive, but that what they're actually trying to do is they're trying to get you off the scent. They're trying to get you to back away. They're new, using negation and equivocations and fault, you know, and counter accusations to get you, you know, on the defensive yourself. The best thing you can do is just stand your ground and ask for what I call amplification or clarification questions. Tell me more about your drug abuse. You say you do it once a day. Tell me more about that. And just leave it open-ended. Don't say, well, when do you, you can say, well, when do you, when do you do that? What time of the day do you do that? And then you say, you know, is there other times that you do this? And, you know, you just start asking more and more open-ended questions, not leading questions, but open-ended questions. Tell me more about that. Tell me more about the, the one time that you smoke weed. Tell me about the other times you smoke weed. Tell me about the other times you drank in excess. How many nights, how many nights have you done it this week? You know, and just 
just start delving into it. Well, why, why would, why do you do that? Or what do you feel is the cause for that? And just start probing, asking those open-ended, you know, not, not soft, but you know, direct questions and don't let the, the accusations and the trying to put you off and the challenge you on that. Because remember, they're trying to convince you of something, which means they're being deceptive. All they do is have to answer the question honestly. They have a binary choice. Either answer the question honestly or try to deceive you. Yeah, and I th- it, to me, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, uh, but it's something that I've done when I'm, uh, when I'm working with the patients. And let me describe to you some of the experiences that I've had and, and then kind of filter this through the work that you're doing and the work in, in your book. Uh, I get a lot of that, and I, I will have uh, patients come. Now, understand, these are patients that their situation was to the point where they had to go through a detox and end up in a 28-day treatment. And, you know, so that their situation brought them there. Then when they're there, they will try to convince you that they really don't need to be there, that this is some sort of a mistake, that, <clears throat> you know, this this place is for real alcoholics and real drug addicts, and they're, they're neither of those. And what I have done is uh, ask people, you know, has, has anyone in your life ever told you, you know, when you're talking about the binary questions, has anyone in your life told you that you needed to come here and... The answer is always yes. Have you tried to stop drinking before? Yes. You know, so that's either yes or no. Um, Do you think that coming here was a mistake? No. Okay. Would you mind if we go through the DSM-5 and look at the 11 criteria for alcohol use disorder, if we're talking about alcohol, and then we we go through the 11 criteria, and and those are very binary questions too. Does this happen? Uh, have you ever drunk to the point, drunk to excess, for example, um, or, or decided you were going to drink a certain amount and then went beyond that? Yes or no? Did you wake up with a hangover? Yes or no? Has this caused social problems, you know, personal or professional problems? Yes or no? And on down the line. Now, you only need to meet two of those criteria to meet the minimum threshold for alcohol use disorder. And, you know, it's interesting when I walk through that and just try to be matter of fact and non non-judgmental, it's amazing how, um, you know, and usually the patient will meet all 11 criteria, not just two. And then and then to say, so what do you think of, of that? Uh, you know, has that changed your perspective about this conversation? And, and it, the, the people that I've done that with, it really sheds light on the severity of the situation and convinces them to look at the entire situation in a different way. But it seems to me, Frank, that doing that, in a non-judgmental, non-accusatory way, uh, particularly in light that it, there's so much stigma associated and shame associated with addiction, that that's effective. And that's that's a way of like reducing the anxiety that the patient is having and uh, doing that. But you, you do that in criminal work as well. You know, when you're interviewing somebody in a, in a criminal case, you want to really reduce that anxiety that they have and feel comfortable and understand that having this conversation ultimately uh, is for their benefit. Um, you know, maybe your well, thoughts on that, Frank. Now, I'm not doing it technically thinking about it the way that you are, but in essence, yeah, well, I'm trying no. to use the same concepts. Yeah, well, and what you're doing is most of the time, we want to ask open-ended questions, but there are instances when closed-ended questions like that, yes or no questions, are appropriate and will actually move the ball down the field. So what you're doing is when you when you ask them, has anyone ever 
in your life told you you should go to counseling or rehab or whatever. You, that's a yes or no. Now, going back to my my belief is that most people have a hard time lying. They <laughs> like to default to the truth because it's more comfortable. We've been socialized to tell the truth. Only bad people lie, and they don't want to think of themselves as bad people. By asking them that question, they have to decide, am I going to be truthful or am I going to be deceptive? And it really reduces those choices down to one or two. Now, they and it's hard to lie. Because it's a yes or no question. So if they say no and they know people have told them, now they're lying. So they, so in those situations, that works very well to ask these closed-ended yes or no questions and then expand on it. Like, why do you think that they would say, why do you think they said and have told you that you should go mm. to counseling to get them to elaborate on it, to, you know, let them sort of marinate in the reasoning and let them voice it. And once they voice it, it's much easier for them to own it mm-hmm. then because suddenly it's coming from them and you're sitting there. And, and that's one of the things that I talk about in my book is you, you listen with curiosity. You're sitting there not thinking, okay, here's the next question I want to ask is I'm going to try to rope him into this scenario. So he has to admit I'm right. Where you're, what you really do is you're listening with curiosity to say, I want to hear what he's going to say. I want to hear his side of it, his thoughts on it, why he's doing this, why he's gotten himself in this position, or why other people think he should be here. And once you listen closely and with curiosity to what he's saying, you're going to have so much more insight into his psyche his motivations and what's going to, uh, what triggers are going to work or not work with this person. So yeah, it's, it's the, the whole point. And that, and that is kind of the point of the book is I want to teach people to know how they can recognize deceptive language, but that's not the answer in and of itself. The next step is once they recognize the deceptive language, how do they question that person? to really reveal their deception or at least in their mind, no, this person is not being straight with me. So I don't need to do business with them or I need to take this conversation in a different direction. And that's what kind of what you're doing with this initial assessment. And uh, I I think it's a very smart strategy because you walk them down this path through a series of yes and no questions. And it forces them to really confront the truth, have to take it and then, I would expand on it and let them explain to me, well, why do people say these type of things? And so I, I think in that respect, that's a very effective way of doing it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you, you talk about in the book too, about getting at the reasoning. So we know the reason now, and you've laid that, that out, why people are deceptive and why people lie to begin with. And let's be very clear. It's not always because they necessarily want to hide something or they're trying to get away with something there could be shame there could be stigma there could be uh maybe they're yeah. fearful uh in in the case in the work that i do they're sometimes to be honest i think they're they're fearful of knowing the truth for themselves forget about their loved ones or work i i think sometimes addiction can be so bad that they don't want to face the truth themselves not for any nefarious reason right. but they it's just hard to do right so you talk about in the book. A, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, there's a lot of shame and embarrassment, not only for themselves, but family members, coworkers, neighbors, friend, family. I mean, 
there's such a stigma around addiction, un, you know, unnecessarily so, mm-hmm. that many people really, especially when you're talking like here where we live in the D.C. area, if you're talking about a, a high-priced consultant or a political operative and he goes to rehab, that's a real, that could be a real uh, problem for him business-wise, you know? And uh, so they, they really want to avoid this as much as they can. So, yeah, that's why there's a lot of deception involved with it because there's a lot of embarrassment. There's a lot at stake for them sometimes. Mm-hmm. And it's not because they're bad people. It's because they've got fears, some of them well-founded fears, that have nothing to do with breaking the law. It's just because of life circumstances. Right. So let's see. Now, let's just throw out this example because, and you're absolutely right, in the, the center where I work, we get a lot of those types of people, a lot of government you know, people that come in. Now, we know that if they're there, uh, they really need to be there and, they, and we're, we're going to work to get them help. But it, until we can break that barrier, uh, we, we, there's things that we need to do and we need to get the patient to look at this differently. And, and again, I'm saying patient, but if you're, if this is your loved one that you're, you're, you're talking about, understand that there's that stigma, there's that shame, there's that embarrassment. But let's move to, now in your book, you talk about um, really describing to the person that you're talking to why this conversation and why honesty is in their best interest. Now, if this is the criminal world, it may be getting a lighter sentence. It may be, um, uh, uh, you know, helping others, uh, confronting their their past, or you know, uh, there there's benefits for them. But in this world, what what sort of arguments would you have, or what sort of attack would you have, then to break that down and convince the person that you're talking to that this conversation and being totally honest is in their best interest? Well, I break it down at the end of the book. I talk about the two sides to everyone that you have to confront is you have the missionary side of a person, the person that wants to do the right thing, do good things to help people. And then you have the mercenary side and we all have the mercenary side that want to take care of ourselves, want to benefit ourselves. Our actions are sometimes many times taken to achieve certain goals that are going to be beneficial to us, either monetarily, professionally, uh, reputation wise on the job, whatever ego building and such as that. So it comes down to with deceptive language, you can use it either as a mercenary or as a missionary. The mercenary in you says, I'll use every trick in the book to get in the criminal world a confession from someone. In the business world, someone to make a deal or buy a product from you. Uh, in the counseling world, to you know, uh, submit to whatever treatment that's being recommended for them. And you can use a lot of the stuff I teach. If you want to recognize what deceptive language is, it's easy to use it because you know what it is now. You've got a label for it and you know how it's being applied. So you can use that mercenary side. And we all do that to a certain degree with our daily lives because we all have certain needs we want to accomplish. But you have to temper it with your missionary side. And in my world, I would always try to get a confession from a bad guy when I had a case because I could then go to the prosecutor and say, okay, they, they confessed, they're cooperating, they gave us information, they're willing to, you know, stand up and take whatever punishment, but they, they are taking full responsibility for their action. What does that do for them? 
that gives them opportunity to get a lesser sentence. And it also gives me an opportunity to speak on their behalf because if I can get them a lesser sentence, they're probably going to take a plea. They may be able to testify against other people and I'm going to wrap this case up quicker so I can move on to my next case. So the missionary side is I'm going to help them. The mercenary side so I can go do more cases and put more bad guys away because that's what I did for a living. Same thing in the rest of the world. You can use this deceptive language in a mercenary way and forget the missionary side of it. And you can't do it. You always have to balance it and do use. You may use some of these techniques for the purpose of getting someone help in the rehab world. If you're trying to do an intervention with someone to get them in rehab to save their life, that's the missionary side of you. The mercenary side of it is, is you're getting them to do what you want, but the missionary side outweighs that mercenary side. And that's, that's how I kind of balance the two because it's very easy. I mean, you, how many times we run across the slick salespeople trying to sell us something and it turns out that after the fact, you find out almost everything they said wasn't even, wasn't the truth, was half truth, deception, you know, and, and those type of things. That guy's being a mercenary. And that's just not the way to do it because, you know, he may sell one house, but we're just going to get around after a while. No one's buying from this guy after a while. So it's a short-term game. They, they're being a mercenary. The missionary side is gone, and that's why eventually they'll lose in the long run. You have to have both. Yeah, and, you know, you remind me of something, Frank. I, I was looking at this concept the other day. It's, it's called the miracle question. And what the miracle question is, if you're a counselor and you're working with a patient who is just at rock bottom and their life is just miserable, they've they've got employment problems, family problems, financial problems, maybe even criminal problems, all those different things, and, and it's drugs and alcohol that led them to that point. The miracle question would be, you know, if you were to close your eyes and, and I was to say to you, or you were sleeping overnight and say to you that overnight a miracle happened, and that is that you were free from drugs and alcohol. What would that look like? What would your world look like if that miracle just happened without you doing anything? And when they open their eyes and and they start telling you about how, you know, my relationships will improve, my employment will improve, my finances will improve, and they will improve because they can't not improve. I think that's just a, a law of physics. Um, you know, you throw that miracle question out there and then start beginning, okay, well, what do you think? So it's interesting how you then turn it, you can turn it back and say, what do you think then you could start doing today to start working towards that miracle that you just had in your your mind? Uh, how could we get that to, to happen? Um, do, do you see sort of like an application from the tools in your book to making that sort of process yeah. Uh, occur maybe that because i know you t you've talked about good bad options before or even storytelling you know for example uh, i might say hey frank you know you remind me of this guy that i knew that did this that and the other thing but here's what he did to turn it around and look you know look at his life today it got so much better that's um uh, you know in the counseling world it seems like um the miracle question is sort of a variant on some of the things that you've taught in the past that I've heard you talk about. Yeah. Well, it, that comes down to, uh, the, the area of rapport building mm -hmm. because 
in communication, you have it's a two-way street. You send and you receive. If you're only sending, communicating, you're the only one talking, you're not listening, you're really not communicating. You have to listen to. And part of getting people to talk to you, getting people to open up to you, is you have to invest in rapport building. And part of that is asking those type of questions and, and listening to their answers and sort of figuring out what motivates them, what moves them or not. Now, when I talk to someone, I, you know, I will, I will use this, you know, you try to find a common ground, you know, it's called uh, me and you alike, you know, because, you know, oh, you like this, I like this. Oh, you drive that way, I drive that way. I, I have the same problems as you. It, they can relate. It's, it's what they call social proofing also, where you're not the only one like that. I'm like that too. And now we've got this commonality and we can expand on the commonality. And, and you mentioned storytelling. Storytelling is so powerful if you can use it effectively. If you have a story, many times you know, we'll use a redemption story, meaning someone was in this bad spot, this bad situation, and through these actions, because they either took responsibility or they changed how they operated or they realized that they have to seek a solution and they found the solution and it fixed their problem and improved their life exponentially. And we'll use those stories to give the example of, listen, this is not hopeless. There are other things that can be done. And the key is, is you can't give up. I mean, and that, and that's kind of the basic of what life is, is if you give up, you're never going to accomplish anything. Mm-hmm. You're never going to, to be anywhere. So you have to keep driving and pushing. The miracle question is very similar to another question that I've heard asked in the world of business. And they'll ask this to young entrepreneurs. What would you do if you woke up tomorrow morning and you couldn't fail at what you wanted to do? If you knew there's absolutely no way you're not going to be successful, what would you do? And the key is, is what they do is, well, I would do this and I would do this and I would do this and I would do this because now they're motivated and they're saying, well, I can't fail. So now I want to go out there and tackle it. And it's that way of getting them, just like the miracle question, out of that mind frame, shifting their mindset from I can't do it to, yeah, you can. You just have to shift your mindset of, you can do this. If you're cured, if you wake up tomorrow morning and you have no more desire for whatever it is, alcohol, uh, heroin, what, what have you, what would you do with your life? Same thing as if you woke up tomorrow morning and nothing you did would ever fail, what would you try to accomplish? Well, suddenly you would try to accomplish big things. Suddenly, if you knew that you didn't have to worry about your addiction, you would start getting your life in order. And, you know, so it's, it's sort of a mindset shift also. Yeah, it is. And, you know, I, I really, I'm fascinated by this idea of the minimi- in, in our world, in the counseling world, minimizing adverbs is very, very important. Everybody minimizes their uh, the use. And then time jumps, meaning, um, you know, this concept of, you know, you talked about how lying is difficult and it's hard work. Um, very, very few people, really, if ever, I mean, I can't think of anybody that completely makes up total lies. It's just they don't tell the entire truth. And right. along with that, they minimize the actual action or the use or 
just omitting certain periods, meaning they'll, they'll tell you about certain things that they're doing, but then jump to another uh, a period and then and omitting that, that information. And that is huge in the counseling world. And uh, as I as I mentioned, you know, we we get the patients that come in, and we do that BPSA, the, the biopsychosocial assessment, and they will give us information. And then oftentimes they will uh, forget that they told us something in that assessment. Now, remember, that's usually when they first come in, and they may be detoxing, they may be tired, may not um, be fully. Uh, cognizant of everything that they're saying and then as they clear in time they start giving us more information and then when they start talking in group it's amazing how many times you 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 hear them talk in group and you're like oh well that's a new one oh he didn't he or she didn't tell me that before or that's not quite the way the story was when they told me initially um so if you gave advice to a counselor you know frank how um how would you deal with that how how could you uh um really Again, get that information in the beginning, or when you get new information from a patient, um, how would you approach that patient without being accusatory or destroying the relationship and rapport that you've built with them? How do you start piecing that together in a way that uh, is gentle, you're kind of coming alongside, and you're helping that patient develop the story in a way that they can use then to get well? Well, you mentioned the minimization and time jumps. Uh, the way to handle uh, someone that keeps jumping ahead in time, a time jump is where they use a phrase or a word to move the story along, like then is, is very, uh, very popular. The, the word then or later or the next thing you knew or the next thing that happened, and that's moving the story along. But you know that they jump from one topic and now they moved on to another topic. So there's a gap there that they've jumped over. They've moved the time ahead. And I want to know why. what happened between the last part, the last scene, and this new scene. Because there's something there. There's an impetus there. There's a time period there that they're probably not wanting to talk about because maybe something happened then. So I'd stop them and say, well, you said this, and then you went here. Tell me more about what happened right before this and make them walk backwards a little bit to the, the, the scene that they jumped from. Because there's many times something there that they don't want to talk about. They don't want to be pressed on. And, how, you know, and as far as how we do it, it's always the best as, a, as a, someone that interviews people for a living is to be authentic and to be honest. That's the key because people know, you know, and that's part of the, the the ideal behind the book is people know when they're being deceived and someone's being honest, but a lot of times they don't know why they know it. They can't put a name to it. They don't really know why they know it. They just have that feeling. So same thing works with us as a counselor or as an interviewer, as a law enforcement officer or as a parent. People can tell if you're being dishonest with them, if you're not shooting straight with them, you're not being uh, authentic with them. And that's, I think that's a key part is you have to be very uh, honest and upfront and somewhat, you know, pragmatic in your approach to it. Be caring, be uh, sympathetic, but not effusively so to the point that you're, you're an emotional wreck also because they're kind of looking in the world of 
addiction, I think they are probably, and I know in the world of criminal investigations, many times the bad guy's looking for someone, a, a little bit of a solid rock to cling to, you know, the, the hardcore sociopath criminals aren't, but many people that we deal with in law enforcement, victims, witnesses, and sometimes bad guys are actually want that strength that they get from the investigator that's questionable because suddenly someone's in control, someone's running the show, and they don't feel like they're responsible to run the show because a lot of times there's a lot of stress involved with trying to juggle all these balls. If you're a bad guy and you're trying to juggle all these balls to keep out of trouble, that's stressful. If you're uh, caught up in addiction and you're being dishonest with your family and your finances are crap and your health is going down and your relationship with your kids, that's a lot of glass balls you're juggling at the same time. And the stress is in tremendous amount. And having that, that counselor or that person talking to them that is being honest, straightforward, non-judgmental, but yet not sitting there trying to baby them, I think a lot of them really actually appreciate that and respond to that well. I know and I know you specialize a lot in dealing with first responders and military off uh, military people in the area of addiction. They really respond to that because that's their mentality from their, their previous profession. So, you know, I think that's kind of the where I, I try to approach things is just be very honest, be authentic and, uh, you know, be yourself, you know, be kind, be sympathetic, be, you know, uh, you know, upbeat, but pragmatically honest. You know, it's interesting that you say that because I had, uh, in the last couple of weeks, I had a, a patient that came in and was talking to us. And this individual, as human beings, I don't think he and I could have been any different if if we'd have tried. You know, I'm the, if you know me, I'm the straight lace coat and tie kind of guy. And this person was the exact opposite of that, you know, very long hair, uh, walking around in pajamas, you know, during the day and, you know, very, very carefree and, um, it just, just different, you know, just different than me. And the only reason I point that out is because the entire time this person was there, uh, it was, you know, I don't, everything that we're talking about here, I don't think I'm an alcoholic. I, I in fact, he was very honest. He said, you know, I'm going to leave here and I'm going to continue drinking. I just, like a lot of people, he just, he didn't want to really stop drinking. He just wanted to, um, not have the consequences from his drinking. He wanted to be able to drink under control. Not, not atypical, but that, but this guy was one of the more brutally honest people about it that when I leave here, I know I'm going to drink again because I want to, I don't want to stop drinking. And he's a young guy. So I, I think that he's not, he's not really faced a lot of the consequences that you know, a lot of the older patients have, have. So, uh, he kept telling me about it, kept telling me about it. And, and I kept talking about, uh, the progression of the addiction, the disease model of addiction and, all of these different issues and just really kept hammering it home. And we would talk and talk. And after this individual discharged, uh, I, sh- shockingly, I, I think one of the, the last people I thought would have ever reached back and called me after uh, discharging was this particular individual. But he did. And he called me and he said, you know, um, you know, I'm, I, I did start drinking. And I said, I know. I, I, you told me you were going to do that. He said, yeah. And he says, uh, are you mad at me? And I said, no, of course not. Why would I be mad at you? You told me you were going to do it. And he said, but I've, I want to let you know that I've really been thinking about the things that you're saying, and I'm seeing it coming true. Everything that you told me was going to happen is starting to come true. 
And he says, I, I just want to let you know, I'm going to be trying. I really am going to be trying. And what you said to me was not lost on me. And I'm coming to grips with it. And I'm going to do the best that I can. But I wanted to let you know that. And uh, I said, that's interesting. I It's funny that, you know, you've been drinking. When was the last time you, you drank? And he said, well, I've been drinking all day today. And I said, well, just out of curiosity, why did you feel a need to, I'm glad that you called, but why did you call? And he said, I just wanted to let you know that your efforts were not lost. And the, the reason why I'm calling you back is I really, pre, I wanted to let you know that I really appreciated how I never felt judged by you. And in fact, I don't feel like I'm being judged by you right now. And that I'm going to try and, you know, I'll call you uh, or ask me if it was okay to call back in the future if need be. And I thought that that was a pivotal movement um, and kind of summarizes what you're talking about, Frank, is that connection and that getting well was right there. This individual said he did not feel like I judged him in the actions that he was taking. Uh, And that's important. That's critical, isn't it? Yeah. No, it's that's a... That's an amazing story, and uh, that's exactly what I was saying. You were honest, you were non-judgmental, but you were pragmatic in in how you approached it. You went down the litany of things that are going to happen in the progression, and uh, you just presented it as a fait accompli, and I think he appreciated that. You weren't trying to be preachy. You weren't trying to, you know, con- you know convert him. You weren't trying to force your will upon him it's up to him but i think that's and he responded to that and enough that the guy did something that most of them will never do i would assume is Mm -hmm. to actually call back and say hey just so you know i've been drinking but i've been thinking about what you were saying too and i think you're probably right i mean you made a connection with that guy Mm -hmm. because he knew you were honest and you were authentic and you weren't doing it for your self-aggrandizement. You were doing. You were just telling him the facts of life, and you know he's going to have to accept it now or accept it later. But the facts of life are still going to be the facts of life. Mm-hmm. But not, you know, but having that connection and not judging the person for that. Uh, we we tell things to people that we like. A we like you. We respect you. We trust you. And we don't feel judged by you. And, you know, for me, and I'll I'll give you the last word on this, Frank, but I think so far what I've been learning not only in the criminal investigations world, but in the counseling world is that is key. If you want to be effective with clients, in, in our case, you must build, I cannot overestimate the importance of rapport building and trust between you and the client. That's going to be, because if you don't have that, None of the other things that you've been talking about, Frank, are going to be useful if you don't have that initial alliance and that rapport building. And um, maybe just take us out, Frank, with your your final thoughts on that. Well, you know, there's an old saying is, you know, when you've been lied to by someone that I'm not mad at you because you lied to me. I'm mad at you because I can never believe you again. Yeah. And that's where we're coming from is if people, if you try to deceive people, and if people try to deceive you, you never look at them the same again. You never trust them quite that much again. And in the world of counseling, in the world of criminal investigation, there's going to be an impact. In the world of business, if people find out that you're dishonest, if you, like, you know, there's a, a guy that was building decks for all the new houses in my neighborhood. And uh, 
at the time, it seemed like a good deal, and he looked like he did a great job. Six years down the road, they're all falling apart, and no one would ever do business with this guy again. Now, he made a few bucks at the beginning, but no one will ever recommend him again to anybody else building a house because he did shoddy work. That's what we're talking about. You have a short shelf life when you're dishonest with people, whether it's in your personal life or professional life. And that goes back to the mercenary and missionary. You have to be more missionary than mercenary to survive in life and to be successful, whether it's in your business life or personal life. You can't always, you always have to be, be, try to be as honest as you possibly can. And sometimes the honest truth is not pleasant, but it's a heck of a lot better than a good lie. So that, that's, you know, <laughs> where I, I come down on it. Like, you know, honesty is always going to serve you better than being deceptive. Now that is so true. And Frank, I'm so excited for you uh, in this book. It has just been released, and it's really a good read. You know, very practical, guys. I mean, this is a book that you're going to keep on your desk. You can use. My wife just asked me the other day if uh, if she thought that this would be a good book for me to read. I know some of the counselors that I work with up at the treatment center that I'm at have asked about it. And, uh, you know, guys, it really is useful for anything that you do. And it's not a long read. It, it's really not. But, Frank, tell us how we can get hold of it um, and, you know, just let the listeners know about not only your book, but even your podcast and, and some of the other stuff that you have coming up here soon. Sure, sure. Well, the book is about 200 pages long. Uh, and in there, I've used a lot of uh, uh statements from criminal cases that people may be familiar with, the Casey Anthony case, the uh, George Zimmerman, Trayvon Martin case, Susan Smith, Oscar Pistorius, those type of things. Because, uh, you know, there's always a, everyone is interested in true crime. And, you know, for me, I find that these are not only good examples of deceptive language, but also interesting stories for people and uh, to keep them entertained. So that's why I included those in there. But once, once again, this is more of a book for the layman or someone that interviews and talks to people on a, on a regular basis for their work or just as a mentor, you know, whatever through, you know, church. Uh, as far as getting the book, it's on Amazon. You just uh, go to Lies People Tell. Uh, you can put in Lies People Tell Frank Runnels. It's R-U-N-L-E-S, and it'll pop up. Uh, you can go to uh, my publisher, bookbaby.com slash uh, bookstore and put in lies people tell and it'll pop up there also uh it's at barnes and noble online barnes and noble i think online at walmart and in a few other places so it's you know out there uh it's in pre-sale right now the paperback uh, version will come be published uh, come out uh, april 11th right now people can get the uh ebook version of it uh, immediately through Amazon or book maybe. Oh, and, uh, you know, please, uh, you know, if, and if anyone's interested in, in just learning how to be a better communicator and if you like a little psychology, if you like a little true crime and you just find something like this interesting, I think this will be a, a, an interesting read for you. Man, that's fantastic. Very exciting. And thank you for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. 
No, I, I appreciate you having me on, Mike. Yeah, no problem. Once again, guys, this episode's been sponsored by FHE Health. According to SAMHSA, first responders are 30% more likely to develop behavioral health conditions like PTSD. FHE Health specializes in getting first responders better and cleared for duty. So find out more at FHEHealth.com. So, guys... Uh, as I always like to say, you know what? I don't represent any group that's out there. I don't represent anyone other than myself. And my purpose for giving this information is to share with you uh, what I've done because it's helped me and maybe it'll help you too. And if we've talked about anything here that doesn't apply to you today, just uh, discard that, but use what you can because that's what we do in recovery. we we'll help others while we're helping ourselves. And once again, uh, visit our Facebook page, which is Recovery is Possible, and our website, vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com. Let me know how I'm doing and let us know if there's a topic that you're in interested in hearing about because i'd love to hear from you frank would love to hear from you and so guys with that take care of yourselves and we will be talking with you soon and we will be talking to you again next week and you're going to love the topic because this is recovery is possible guys take care bye-bye